0: Good morning. Good morning, and welcome to worship at Pleasant Street Christian Reformed Church. It's good to see all of you today on this uh, chilly October Sunday. Uh, Welcome to those of you joining us online as well. Um, For anyone with us today, whether for the first time or uh, because you're with us every week, welcome. Uh, My name is Matthew. I'm the senior pastor here on behalf of all of us. So glad uh, to be gathering and worshiping together as a church today. as we're getting started this morning, I want to highlight just a couple of things happening in the life of our church for you in case you're new or you're just not aware what's going on. One, one of those things is that um, right now we're in the middle of our Faith Promise Pledge drive. This is a way for us as a church not only to fund the work of our congregation here in town, but also to partner with missionaries who are helping to ad- advance the cause of the good news of Jesus both in word and deed around the world, uh, and also in nearby communities. And so during these weeks, we are praying, we're thinking about, we are wondering together how we can give generously toward these causes. If you'd like to know more, you can find out some information about Faith Promise on the back of your bulletin. Uh, The other thing I wanna highlight for you is this coming week uh, for our young professionals, uh, young adults, we've been thinking about Ways that we could make connections and reconnect in our church. And so on Wednesday night, uh, this coming Wednesday, there's an opportunity for us to host a a gathering, a forum, where we're connecting some of uh, the professional experience and wisdom uh, in our congregation to some of our folks who are new to their jobs and professions, asking questions about how to do interviews, how to write uh, job descriptions and resumes. how to pick meaningful jobs and careers. And so if you'd like to find out more, there's also information about that in the bulletin as well. But friends, just now you've gathered in the presence of God together, not just to hear announcements, but to worship. And so would you rise in body or in spirit? Let's say this call to worship together.
1: Well, good morning, everyone. This morning, our call to worship comes from Psalm 96. Sing to the Lord a new song. Lord, all the earth.
2: Sing to the Lord, praise his name.
1: Proclaim his salvation day after day. Declare his glory among the nations. His marvelous deeds among all the people.
2: For great is the Lord and most worthy of praise.
1: He is to be feared among all gods. For all gods of all nations are idols.
3: Splendor and majesty are before him.
1: Strength and glory, sanctuary. Sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord. Father, we confess that in our arrogance we act as a people so full of knowledge that we hardly make room for your love.
2: We confess that we yes. too often
1: judge. We really need to listen. We push people away when you call us to welcome them into our communities. We confess we think, we think only about, about protecting, protecting ourselves. When we, we challenge, ourselves. challenge us to everything. We
3: Lord, forgive us for being more concerned with being right.
1: Guide us, Father, to live according to your unconditional love.
3: Just one, another, just
2: one another, and we as one
1: Please join me in a silent confession to God. Friends, hear this good news. There is no wrong that God cannot make right, and there is nothing that can separate us from God's love. The Lord is patient and kind, generous and good. There is but one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things came and through whom we can truly live. Put your faith in God's great mercy. and By the power of Jesus Christ, we are made whole. Amen.
0: When we come to church, we do so to be re-narrated. We come in here thinking that Uh, somehow, we probably needed to earn a place to get here, that we had something we needed to prove to God or to others. And when we come here, we are welcomed first by God. And then we have an honest conversation where he reminds us that we didn't earn a place here. He called us, he invited us. And here we are learning a different way to operate in the world one where we open our hands in generosity as a response to what God has already given us. And now as a church, as those learning to place our faith in Jesus Christ, we get to do that with a tangible sign of trust by offering up some of what God has entrusted to us for the work of our congregation. We're gonna take the offering is what I'm saying. So I wanna invite the deacons up who are gonna help us to be generous. And while they do that, let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, We ask that you would take these gifts, uh, small or large, given in great joy and trust and faith, and that you would use them to make your name great and to build up your church. And that through this act of generosity, you would make us more like Jesus. In your name, amen.
1: Friends, the peace of Christ is with you. Let's spread the peace of Christ to your neighbors. It's now time for our Kid Street kids, age 4 through 2nd grade. They're invited to come up and be dismissed for Kid Street. People of God, what is our prayer? Continue
2: to show us.
1: The Lord be with you. And
3: also with you.
1: Go in peace to love and serve Jesus. Good morning.
4: My name is Sue Cooper. I'm one of the elders here. It's my honor and privilege to lead us in a congregational prayer. Uh, Before I do that, I'd like to read to you a couple verses from Ephesians. The vision team looked at these verses last week and um, spent some time Uh, pondering them they talk about the unity of the body of Christ but also the diversity of the gifts needed for the body of Christ Um, we all have an important role in our local church and in the worldwide body of Christ so let me read those to you Ephesians 4 3 through 6 make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace there is one body and one spirit just as you were called to one hope when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all, through all, and in all. And verses 11 through 13. So Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and teachers to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for gathering us here today to focus on you. We thank you that you have called us to be one unified body with the mission to draw all people to you. Help us to not lose sight of this mission and forgive us when we replace your mission with ours. Father, we pray for the worldwide body of Christ, especially those parts of the body that are experiencing persecution. Give courage and strength through the power of the Holy Spirit to believers who must hide and live in danger. Forgive and heal the divisions that exist in the body of Christ. Help us to focus on the one hope, one God and Father of all, who is over all, through all, and in all. We pray for the local churches in this community. We are so blessed to have churches that work together. We thank you for the Northbridge Association of Churches and those who participated in the recent crop walk. Bless the ministries of the NAC and of those and those of individual churches. We remember the Peace of Bread Meals, Homeless Shelter Program. Saturday morning breakfasts at St. Pat's, food pantry, and the many ways the churches bless our community. We pray for our church, Pleasant Street, that you will help us to focus on your mission to draw all people to Christ and to equip your people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up. We have a great need for leaders to step forward into roles of elder and deacon provide the leadership that we need. We pray for the various groups that meet during the week to learn and grow in you. Bless the children and youth ministries, coffee break, midweek studies, prayer and Bible study groups. Help us to become mature in the faith, attaining the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Father, please bless those who are struggling with health and recovery issues. Bless Cindy H. Karen S., Kathy B., Carol L., Hank E., Jim and Joy B., and Leanne L. Bring healing, strength, and renewal to their bodies. Bless those who struggle with mental health issues. Bring comfort and stability to them and to family members who walk with them. We thank you for Pastor Matthew and ask your blessing on him and his family. Guide Matthew now as he brings your word to us. Help us to grow to maturity. In Jesus' name, amen.
3: Today's scripture reading comes from a series of verses from 1 Corinthians 8, 9, and 10. Now about food sacrificed to idols. We know that we all possess knowledge, but knowledge puffs up while love builds up. Those who think they know something do not yet know as they ought to know but whoever loves God is known by God. So then, about eating food sacrificed to idols, we know that an idol is nothing at all in the world and that there is no God but one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is but one God, the Father, for whom all things come and for whom we live. And there is but one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things came and through whom we live. But not everyone possesses this knowledge. Some people are still so accustomed to idols that when they eat sacrificial food, they think of it as having been sacrificed to a god. And since their conscience is weak, it is defiled. But food does not bring us near to God. We are no worse if we eat and no better if we do. Be careful, however, that the exercise of your rights does not become a stumbling block to the weak. For if someone with a weak conscience sees you with all your knowledge eating in an idol's temple, won't that person be emboldened to eat what is sacrificed to idols? So this weak brother or sister for whom Christ died is destroyed by your knowledge. When you sin against them in this way and wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if what I eat causes my brother or sister to fall into sin, I will never eat meat again so that I will not cause them to fall. To the weak I became weak to win the weak. I have become all things to all people so that by all possible means I might save some. I do this for the sake of the gospel that I may share in its blessings. I have the right to do anything, you say, but not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but not everything is constructive. No one should seek their own good but the good of others. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Do not cause anyone to stumble, whether Jews, Greeks, or the Church of God, Even as I try to please everyone in this way, for I am not seeking my own good, but the good of many, so that they may be saved. Follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. This is the word of the Lord.
0: Good morning. We've been going through the book of 1 Corinthians together. If you're new or just joining us uh, today catching, uh, to catch you up to speed, and these have been some very difficult and complex chapters, don't worry, uh, next week we have a guest preacher, so we all get a break, Okay, myself included. Um, but as, as we turn our attention to these, these passages, uh, please pray with me. Lord Jesus Christ, the world that we live in is fractured and hostile and competitive. When we come here, we are reminded that you are massaging and grinding down the rough edges between us. That you are taking disparate parts that we couldn't ever see fitting together and you are turning them into a collage, into stained glass, into something new, a mosaic. And that this new one thing does not destroy or erase all of the differences between us, but in fact gives them their full and beautiful expression. We ask that as we turn our attention to your servant Paul's words, written a long time ago, that by your spirit you would also make them words for us. Help us to understand what these words might mean for our lives today in a world that is still hostile and fractured. In your name, amen. When I was in seminary, uh, one of the things they do is they teach you how to preach, and you have a preaching professor. And one of my preaching professors, Dr. Rotman, once told us a story about a time that he preached a sermon on 1 Corinthians 8 at his church in in downtown Toronto. He was pretty sure that it would seem irrelevant to them, and so he saved it for a Sunday evening. (laughs) It's okay, that's funny, right? He worked very, very hard all week to try to adapt this text to them, to translate it, because he was convinced he was going to need to prove to them how this wasn't just a whole lot of words about nothing. Well, after the service, there was a young woman who came up to him and said, well, what's the answer? And he was confused. The answer to what? He said, well, can we eat meat offered to idols or not? Well, she wanted to know because she had been part of a small pagan community that did, in fact, perform religious food rituals. And he was absolutely shocked. Never in his life did he imagine that someone still might ask this question. The issue of idolatry was a lot closer than he thought. In the world of the first uh, century Christians, like those in Corinth, the issue of food offered to idols wasn't just close, it was everywhere. It was everywhere. This was one of, if not the, major church and culture hot-button issue of the first century. In fact, if you look over at the book of Acts, which tells the story of, of how the church begins to grow... Right, you see that um, a couple of chapters into the book of Acts, by Acts 15, they have to hold a big church meeting, and they've got to get all the leaders together from all over the area because they have to talk about what they're going to do about the ways that Jews and Gentiles are suddenly coming together, and they're, and they're crashing into each other, right? And so the decision of that conference, uh, the Jerusalem conference, was very simple, Right? They said that Gentiles don't have to become Jewish culturally to be Christians, and they said that Jews don't have to give up their Jewish cultural customs to be Christians either. Gentiles just have to try to avoid two things. They have to abstain from sexual immorality and food offered to idols. Now these are in fact the two things that Paul is writing about from chapter 5 all the way through chapter 11. It's really just two things. It takes him half a chapter in chapter six to say, flee from sexual immorality. It takes him three chapters to say, flee from idolatry. Apparently, according to Paul, sex was the easy sermon. This is the hard one. Chapter eight, nine, and 10 are all part of one big argument that is responding to this one issue in Corinth. That's why we're looking at selections from this big area. They're all part of Paul's response to a very simple question that the Corinthians have brought to him in a letter and through communication. Can we eat meat from animals slaughtered in pagan cultic rituals or not? But rather than just answer the question, Paul responds with something rather like a symphony, Right? He, he gives them this elaborate argument that's constructed in four movements. The first thing that he does is he reframes the question, uh, and he says it's not actually about rights, it's about love. And then he goes on to offer himself as an example And then he re-narrates the church into the story of Israel by telling them some stories from the wilderness and the dangers of idolatry. And then finally, he attempts to balance freedom and servanthood by helping them to imagine themselves as people imitating Christ. It's really quite magnificent if you look at the whole thing. But I know that you are probably tempted to say at this point, yeah, leave it to Paul to take a simple yes or no question and turn it into a theological treatise. Well, to us, it might look like a big deal about nothing. Like, this is simply as simple as, can you eat a hot dog at a Patriots game? Which is ridiculous, because everybody knows you get a sausage and onion instead. But no, 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 it's not, it's not quite like that, all right? The question of idol meat is a little bit more like this, and this is just one example, right? Your friends invite you to go out to the club for a night of dancing, and they happen to play Ariana Grande's song, God is a Woman, which is all about taking the things we love about women and making them divine. Can you dance to it? Because to dance to it would be to use your body to participate in the idolization of something created as if it were God himself. Right away, we don't really like the question because we think it's either silly to ask because you shouldn't be going to a club anyway, or we think it's silly because it's just a song and there's no truth in it. it's just a way to make money. She doesn't mean it. Nobody does. It's just music for the kids. So welcome to Corinth where everyone is trying to figure out how to Christians relate to their wider culture. And what they're saying to Paul is can you please just give us the answer can we or can't we? Now Paul's not going to answer the question though at first. Not until we get all the way to chapter 10 verse 14 so spoiler alert the answer is no. But 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 anyway, right so he says at right in the middle of this flee from all idolatry. But why doesn't he just come out and say it if it's that simple? Well, because it's not. It's actually really difficult. So instead, he reframes the question first by hypothesizing a conversation between them and himself about knowledge and love and about the strong and the weak. This is one of the more famous passages in 1 Corinthians, and if it's familiar to any of us, we may have heard it described as a a kind of conflict between progressive and conservative elements of the church. The weak have scruples. They don't smoke, they don't drink, they don't go with boys that do. The strong are, are more progressive. They have fewer scruples. Sometimes, We think that Paul is saying that you need to be sensitive to people with scruples, so don't offend them, right? Show restraint because they have a lot of opinions. But this is problematic for several reasons, not least of which, as should be obvious, because it's condescending. It's extremely condescending to traditionalists. It portrays Paul as as, uh, sympathetic to the progressives and encourages the church to be nothing except just grudgingly patient with cranky members until they can just get on board with the rest of us. And I can't help but imagine that this has led to many a very long church meeting where somehow the most unhappy person winds up holding all of the veto power, right? When Paul says the weak, he is not talking about people with scruples or fragile egos. He, the weak people are people who have just had their lives blown up by becoming Christians. And their moral compass is spinning because they, they no longer know which end is up. There's a lot more at stake here than than opinions about what is culturally appropriate for Christians to do. What is at stake is their social relationships and their status within their wider city. Right, the question of idol meat and religious rituals is really about the fact that Christianity unites people who were formerly alienated from each other and had no reason to ever get together. And at the same time, it also alienates people who formerly used to have a lot in common. It alienates them from their culture and sometimes their families. Christianity had an immense social cost. Corinth, like other cities in the ancient world, is full of gods. So there's gods everywhere. You have city gods. You have gods attached to local clubs and societies. Athletes have gods. Families have tribal gods. The Pottery Guild has gods. Right? You have the Roman imperial cult to Caesar, which honors him as a god. There's gods everywhere. And one of the ways that you participate in life in the ancient world is that you honor the gods. And you do this by buying little statues and trinkets and items that image that god or that deity. You do it by paying tribute to those gods in little coffers. And another way is by going to dinners and religious festivals in which an animal was sacrificed to that god, and then the meat is divided up and people eat it. The leftover meat is then sold to the market and it goes to the grocery store. Meat is very, very expensive in the ancient world and not everybody has access to it. So when you have meat, it's usually because it's been involved in some kind of important religious festival and function. And what this should make, start to make clear to us is that it's very, very hard not to participate in idolatry. Because idolatry is a social and it's an economic reality, it's just part of life in the world. The craftsman makes the statues. The priests get their food from the sacrifice. You pay for the statues so the craftsman can make a living. You honor the gods so the priests can eat meals. You went to the temple because it's part of being a good member of society and the city and your country. And so, meals in the dining rooms of temples to idol gods are not only religious festivals, they're also the places where business happens. Remember that Corinth is full of people who used to be slaves. It's full of people who have all come from somewhere else. And the the whole city has this uh, culture of people who are trying to advance their own name and reputation, and they're competing with each other. Everybody's trying to get ahead. And the place where you got ahead was dinners, in the dining rooms of the temples dedicated to idols. It's where the politics of the city happened. It's where deals were made. It's where connections and introductions were made. It was where you networked. And the food on the table had all been dedicated to false gods. So for Paul to say flee from idolatry was tantamount to career suicide, And because idol-making is a huge part of civic life and a huge part of the economy, to abstain from idolatry was to be antisocial. It was to be unpatriotic. It threatened the economy, which is what happened when Paul went to Ephesus, which Sue read us some verses from that letter a little while ago. This is another major city like Corinth. When Paul goes to Ephesus, so many people become Christians that it actually bumps it causes a a blip in the economy because people stopped buying statues in the marketplace and showing up for temple meals. Not unsurprisingly, this causes a riot in the city. But it's not because Christians had weird, private, religious convictions. It's because those convictions destabilized the economy. The problem is not that Christians have weird ideas or they do strange things on Sunday that we don't know about. It's that Christians stop buying statues and participating in the festivals, and this is not a personal religious choice. This is unpatriotic. This is antisocial behavior. And so this tells us something about why the Corinthians are writing to Paul again about this. This is not the first time that they've talked about idolatry. This is like Christianity 101 for them. All right, and so the fact that the Corinthians are bringing it up again to Paul, as one commentator notes, it tells us that they aren't asking, can we eat meat offered to idols? They're asking Paul again, why can't we? Why can't we, Paul? Like kids who do not like their parents' first answer, they're asking again, not because they didn't understand, but because they don't like it. They would like to give you another chance to try again. Friends, to be a Christian means to abstain from some things in the culture. It means to say no. It means to abstain from participating in culture and parties and the economy and sometimes our families and our societies in ways that cost us. Right, we can imagine that this is a moment where doctrine and life, doctrine and life in the real world seem to collide. Right, Paul, you, you are simply being too idealistic. This is not a workable solution. Have you seen where we live? Have you seen what we're trying to do? They're saying, Paul, come on, be realistic. We know better, right? We all know that there's no such thing as an idol. There's only the one God. We know that this God is the Father of the Lord Jesus Christ. We came from Him, we live for Him. Jesus Christ is His Son, He's our Lord. We know that idols aren't real. So so then the food that we eat, it's of no consequence, right? Everything is good and, and it's made by God and idols aren't real so we know that participating in this world, there's nothing off limits because it's all good and it's all been created by God. So can't we go to the parties and eat the food in the market? Paul says, no. Just just because idols are dead does not mean that they aren't still there, right? And, And it doesn't mean that just because they're dead, they aren't still spiritually toxic. Right? Idols can't speak or move or hear. They aren't real, but spiritually speaking, they are. Spiritually speaking, the reality of evil and demonic power is real in the world. And when you participate in idolatry, you are unwittingly giving power to those forces. And this winds up harming you and the church and your non-Christian neighbors. You seem, you certainly do seem to know a lot, Paul playfully chides, but my dear know-it-all children, you have forgotten that the Christian life is not about what you know, it is about what you love. So consider what would happen, Paul says, if a new convert happens to see you walking into the temple of Artemis for a dinner party. This convert is just waking up to the realization that idols don't exist. Like waking from a nightmare, the dream still feels more real than the waking. It takes a while to recalibrate. Everything is backwards and upside down. They don't know where they are anymore. and Because everything that they thought was part of being a good citizen and family member, they have discovered was actually pointing them in the wrong direction. Their moral compass is upside down and backwards. This person, this new convert, is not weak because they have scruples. This person is weak because they don't know at this moment what is right and wrong. It just got blown up. And so then they see you go and eat amongst people in a temple. Well, that is going to falsely tell them that idolatry is no big deal. And you, by going to a dinner to advance your reputation, will have just sent a new Christian running back into the arms of false gods, all because you were unwilling to change your diet. Idols are dead, but the world is still full of idols, Paul says. And not everyone knows that they're dead, and that gives them power. So later in chapter 10, Paul uses the same hypothetical situation to say the similar effect on non-Christians. He says, imagine you're at a dinner in Artemis' temple and one of your colleagues from the guild who knows you're a Christian sees you eat meat offered to idols. They will think that there's nothing different about Christianity from their religious observance and worse, they will think that their idolatry is just as fine as your Christian convictions. No difference, it's just the same. Eating meat in the temple might be good for your career but it hurts your soul and it harms the church, and it will lead to confusion for your non-Christian neighbors. There is a social cost to being a Christian, but Paul is telling us that the cost of accommodation to the culture bathed in the worship of false gods is much higher. Right, so when we think of idolatry, We conjure images of primitive people bowing down before statues in public spaces and temples, Aphrodite, uh, goddess of beauty, Ares, the god of war, Artemis, the god of fertility and wealth, Hephaestus, the god of craftsmanship. But as Tim Keller observes for us better than anyone else that I've found, our culture isn't actually so different. We still have idols. We still have our priesthoods with totems and rituals. We don't call them priests. We call them personal trainers. We call them health gurus. They ask us to sacrifice our bodies for 10 more reps in order to appease the God of health. We lift a shot of wheatgrass and oblation to the God of well-being. We have our shrines, office towers, the spa, the gym, the art studio, the workshop, the stadium, where we make all kinds of sacrifices to get the good life. Keller writes, we may not kneel before a statue of Aphrodite, but many young women today are driven by an obsessive concern over body image. We may not burn incense to Artemis, but when money or career is raised to cosmic proportions, we perform a kind of child sacrifice, neglecting family and community to achieve a higher place in business and gain prestige. In ancient times, the deities were bloodthirsty and hard to appease. They still are. So in Acts chapter 15, the church meets and they get together and they decide there are really two important things that these new converts have to know and have to change about their lives to be Christians. They have to avoid sexual immorality and they have to avoid idolatry. This is interesting because in the Bible, there is a connection made between sexual behavior and idolatry. The prophets do this in spades in the Old Testament, but Paul does too. And the reason is this. In the same way that we often try to split our emotional life from our physical bodies, we do the same with our spiritual lives. We wind up saying, God, you can have me on Sunday. You can have 10% of my money. You can have this much of my thought and my time and my energy, but the rest is for me. And God, being jealous, is adamant that this arrangement is not going to work. No deal. You cannot, cannot, cannot serve God and mammon, Jesus said. and He wasn't kidding. We have to go all in with Jesus. That's the only hope that we have. And to do that means that we have to run away from all idolatry, Paul says flee idolatry, flee sexual immorality. It's two very simple things. It takes him five chapters to be able to do it. Why? Because we were not meant to live partially committed relationships either with people or with God. We were meant to give and to love wholeheartedly. And this is the only way that we can feel and be whole and happy. So sometimes we say no. We say no to values that idolize land or ethnicity or a people group, and sometimes they might call us unpatriotic. When we abstain from conversations that that dehumanize persons for skin or shape or culture or gender, they may call us prudes. When we raise questions about harm done in the name of profit, they will call us 'er ne'er-do-wells to try and abstain from the idolatries of our culture will make us look like we are fanatical. It will make us look like we are unnecessarily different. Friends, idolatry is closer than we realize, and being a Christian still comes at a social cost. But the cost of not doing so is so much higher. Because when Christians culturally wind up revering money, or sex, or power in the same ways as the world, it makes us all look like hypocrites. And that reinforces the power of these idols and the eyes of people who do not know any different, and we lose credibility to critique culture. C.S. Lewis wrote uh, in Mere Christianity a, a quote which Um, We were pondering this week at our vision team meetings, and I was pondering it for this sermon. C.S. Lewis writes in Mere Christianity that we think we will find meaning and happiness by trying to accommodate accommodate, uh, Christianity to, to modern sensibilities. And what he says is it's not gonna work. He says the terrible thing, the almost impossible thing, is to hand over your whole self, all your wishes, all your precautions to Christ. But it is far easier than what we are trying to do instead. We are trying to let our mind and heart go their own way, centered on money or pleasure or ambition, and hoping, in spite of this, to behave honestly and chastely and humbly. And that is exactly what Christ warned us you could not do. Cutting the grass may keep it short, but I shall still produce grass and no wheat. If I want to produce wheat, the change must go deeper than the surface. I must be plowed up and re-sewn. It is the difference between paint, which covers the surface, and a dye or stain, which soaks right through. We must go in for the full treatment. This is the whole of Christianity. There is nothing else. It's easy to get muddled about that, to think that the church has a lot of different objects, education, building, missions, holding services, but the church exists for nothing else but to draw men into Christ, to make them little Christs. If they are not doing that, all the cathedrals and clergy and missions and sermons and even the Bible itself are simply a waste of time. Paul's trying to show us that we're trying to have it both ways. We're trying to live in two worlds to give the Lord a portion and keep the rest for ourselves. And Paul says, remember the family history of Israel to know how that worked out. For Paul, the antidote to a whole world complicit in idolatry and spiritually toxic is not actually saying no to idols, but yes to the gospel. You have to go all in to Jesus, which is not about withholding things from all the bad things. It's about giving absolutely everything you have to him. And to do that will mean that we do miss out. It might mean we get passed over for a promotion. Or old friends don't call us quite so much anymore because we're not fun. It might mean that family gatherings are a little more awkward than they used to be. And sporting events don't give you as much joy as they used to. But Christianity, Paul says, isn't actually measured in what you give up, but what you get. You know, in chapter 9, it's interesting, Paul sets himself forward to us as an example to emulate. He says, I became all things to all people because of the gospel. Paul says, I could have asked you all for money. I had every right to do that, but I didn't not because I didn't earn it or because I didn't think I was worth it. It's because I get to do this, and that is reward in of itself. I get to spend my life giving up my life for you. He says, I would do anything to make this message of the cross heard by Jew or Gentile, slave or free, weak or strong. If there's anyone who knew the social cost of Christianity, it's Paul. I mean, he literally had his name changed because of such a radical transformation in his life. But Paul's not counting the cost. He is reveling in what he is now free to do. Paul says, I'd do anything to be a partner in the gospel. I would do anything in order to be able to participate in God's transforming work of redemption in your life or anyone else's. Friends, Christian discipleship is not measured by what we are now free to do. It's measured instead by how far we are willing to go for someone else's good. It's not measured by what we can get, but what we can now freely give up. Better yet, what we have become free to choose instead. There is still a social cost to following Jesus, but take heart. We are not defined by the feasts and rituals we no longer get invitations to. We are defined by the feast and the ritual that we have been invited into instead. For we do not abstain from temple food in order to go hungry and starve around but instead to go to a different meal. The one where we remember that on the night of his arrest, the Lord Jesus took bread, and after giving thanks to God, he broke it and he gave it to them, and said, this is my body, which I have given for you, and friends, I have held nothing back. And after that, he took the cup, and he gave thanks to God, and then he gave it to them, and said, this cup is my own blood, which has been poured out for you and for many. Whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you remember together, you taste, you see, you begin to believe that the Lord has held nothing back from us. We begin to believe that when we eat and drink together, that Jesus, being rich, became poor so that we could be rich. We drink and eat and remember and believe that Jesus, having all status in the world, gave up all his status so that we could have his reputation. We eat and drink and remember and believe that Jesus, being in every way equal with God himself, did not use that to his advantage, but instead used everything that he had to give us the advantage. And here at this table, we begin to understand to remember and finally to believe that at this feast, it is not about who you know. At this feast, it doesn't matter who has your business card. At this feast, it doesn't matter who your family is. We aren't at this feast because of who we are or what we've done or who we know or who our family is at all. We come to this table because of who knows us. Whoever loves God only does that because they have finally come to understand how deeply God loves them. And when we take and eat and drink, we revel in the Lord who knew exactly who we were all the way to the bottom and still held nothing back from us. And when we remember and believe that, we are finally free to seek the good of others. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, in a world of rights, we ask that you would reorient us toward love. in a world where we worry very much about what is our due, show us instead the good news of the gospel, which is that we do not get what we deserve. We get instead what Jesus does. And please bring all of our lives into conformity with this very simple and powerful and profound good news. Amen. As those being conformed into the image of Christ, we hear God's word, but we also wonder together about what it means. And we do this together as a church in a couple of different ways, both by singing in response, but also by taking opportunities to reflect on what we're learning together One of those ways is for our third through fifth grade students, our Echo students, to come up and have a chance to talk with some of our church leaders about what they're noticing and learning, observing uh, in our church life together. And another way is after the service with a sermon discussion, uh, which starts at 11.05, and all of you would be welcome to join us, uh, to grab a coffee and snacks, join us at 11.05 right underneath where you're sitting in the foundation. Uh, Can we have our Echo students come up? We have a blessing for you. Well, let's bless them anyway, right, wherever they are today. Friends, would you join me in this? People of God, what is our prayer for our Echo students? Together, almighty and loving God, thank you for the gift of your word. They would say, help us to believe what we have heard and live in ways that honor you above all. Amen. And we would say, go in peace to love and serve Jesus, and together, be to God. Friends, would you rise in body and spirit? As those whom Jesus has given His name to blessed us with His presence, would you raise your voices together and offer the prayer He taught us to pray? Our Father in heaven.) Ha- Brothers and sisters, I'd invite you to lift up your eyes, to open your hands and receive God's parting blessing, his gift to you. Friends, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace. Amen. Let's go singing.
2: peace in my trust
1: love and serve Jesus Christ.